Hello, and welcome back to the Self Healer Soundboard, How to Do the Work Masterclass. Last episode, we explored the different effects our bodies can have on our minds. This week, we're going to dive into how our mind affects our body. Chapter six, the power of belief. We are collecting questions for next week's episode, which will be chapter seven, inner child. So as always, you can call in, leave a voicemail with your questions. Please leave your name, location, and question for the inner child chapter. The phone number is 213-375-8385. It's also on your screen below. We're going to kick off this episode with a passage from the book, The Origin of Belief. This is on page 110. Belief about ourselves become the filters that are placed over the lens of how we view our world. This is especially true if the thoughts activate our stress response and vagus nerve. The habit of thinking a particular thought over and over again changes our brain, our nervous system, and the cellular chemistry of our entire body, making it easier to default to such thought patterns in the future. In other words, the more we think something, the more we are likely to believe it. Our practice thoughts become our truth. Our beliefs are so incredibly powerful, so I think it would be helpful first to start out with what is a belief? Our beliefs are essentially our deepest perceptions of who we are, about our relationships, our past, our future, our place in the world at large. They are ingrained in our subconscious, usually before age seven, and they're based on our lived experiences. Our beliefs are shaped by so many factors in our external environment, namely our parent figures. We have parent figures who actually oftentimes directly state beliefs. This can look like when families, I know my particular family like to do this, group us together as for instance, my family, the Laperas. I would hear things as the Laperas do this or the Laperas don't do this. One common belief that was actually recited in my family that I like to share is this idea of there's always something happening. Now, this always something could have been the mail was delayed. It could have been an actual health crisis of my sister or my mom. My dad, in a very similar um, vein, asked how he was doing. I often hear him reply, well, I woke up, so the rest of the day is downhill. Hearing both of that direct messaging from my family resulted in me internalizing a belief, very understandably, that life is stressful and that life really is about protecting yourself from the next catastrophe. When I sat down to think about this one and really look at what beliefs I was told as a child, I struggled a little bit to come up with things uh, largely because there was always a parent figure absent. There wasn't necessarily always a parent figure or guardian there. So if you're hearing this too and beginning to wonder really, what did your parents unconsciously say over and over? What did they say about the world? What were those messages that you consistently heard? When I sat with that and tried to think, all right, what did I constantly hear from, for me personally, from my mom and dad? And I fell short a bit because there was largely no one really there. There wasn't necessarily anyone talking to me. So that's also just something to keep in mind if you are beginning to explore, you know, what are those things that you're told over and over? What is that belief? It's also very common for any other fellow latchkey kids that were at home without that parent, um, that there was an absence of that belief being said to you. Um, so just keep that in mind too, if you really are beginning to explore, it's also very common that there wasn't something that was instilled or repeated. Uh, when I did do a bit of digging, I came up with one thing that I just, I always stuck with me um, was my mom saying, she called me up one time, wanted to send me a shirt at some point later in life. So I wasn't a child anymore. 
Um, I was probably late teens, early 20s. And she wanted to send me a shirt and asked me, you know, what size are you? And without thinking about it, I said, you know, I think a medium. And before I could get that out, she said, you know, it's okay, Jen. It's okay if you're a medium. Like, no worries. It's all good, which really struck me. Oh, she's trying to comfort me for the shirt size that I'm giving her when I hadn't even thought about it. And when I then take that and sort of lay that over my childhood, I do see and remember this consistent this consistent conversation of, you know, smaller is better. There was a lot that was based on look. So I could see and really, if I did some digging, I could pull from just that interaction on the phone with my mom that the overall message there that I likely would have been heard as a child is smaller is better. And I do see that pattern with my own body image that I've struggled with throughout my life that very likely does directly relate to that. Um, another flip side to this too, while we're talking about you know, beliefs that we hear and how it shapes things, there also can be, for me at least, there was kind of a positive spin on it or something I always heard from my mother, at least in particular, that I know came from survival or panic of all the chaos going on around and really trying to, you know, calm the kids or make the kids feel okay. There was a consistent a consistent dialogue from her when she was there that everything will be okay, everything will work out, everything will work out. And she was always praying. She always had this glass angel that stayed in the car and drove around with us. So she always had this really strong faith and reassured everything will be okay, everything will be okay. Um, so I realized just exploring even for this episode, hearing that over and over is also a belief that was instilled in me that there was really a deep knowing and trust. And I didn't know what the trust was. I didn't believe in this thing called God or what it was. I didn't have the kind of faith that she did, but I really did have a deep security and knowing that everything truly is okay and everything truly will work out. I appreciate you pointing that out. We have beliefs that that really do are around really anything and everything. So point of exploration, think back. Think back to the things that were directly said to you or around you. A lot of times the beliefs are communicated because we hear the adults around us just sharing their own thoughts. I know in my family, this is something that particularly came up and I watched this with my nephew growing up. We didn't really shelter adult conversations from children. So while I do have limited memory of my childhood, I do have the idea that very adult things were being discussed within earshot. So that's another one of those areas that we are hearing and a lot of us are internalizing then these beliefs as our own. We are impacted by what was done, what is modeled, the actions that the adults, the caregivers around us are taking. And this can look like how our families socialize, you know, having a family that tends to socialize with a particular type of person um, or group of people. So again, it doesn't have to be what's said, it can be what's done. And one of the examples that comes to mind for me you know, in a moment in time, if there was conflict in the household and the way that conflict was represented in my household, my dad in particular would become angry. So say we had an active conflict and the family had to go out. We had dinner or we had something to do outside of the home. What I would see happen is my dad, you know, having an angry moment in the home would suddenly shift. When we were now out in public, he would become, as my mom very lovingly called him, Mr. Personality, as if nothing had occurred in the home at all, definitely not anything stressful. What I came to realize and understand about my mom is this very much mapped onto her own childhood experience. She had a mom who at one point, there's a, a family story that is often shared about a family party in my mom's childhood where 
alcohol that was being brought for the party literally had to be brought in the back door. So the underlying message here is that there are some things that are appropriate for the public consumption, and there are some things that aren't. And of course, for me, this was a consistent occurrence, right, where there was maybe anger in the home or conflict in the home that was being misrepresented or wasn't being shown outward. And again, for me, it's not what was said in those moments. It was the act of putting on that mask or wearing that facade, becoming Mr. Personality, that if I'm honest, I embodied like my father. I could easily shift and put aside whatever it was that was bothering me to wear a mask, to present myself you know, to the world as I imagined they would want me to be. So beliefs come from, again, what is said directly and indirectly, and they can also come from what we see modeled to us. Yeah. So what did parents do or what did your parent figure do unconsciously over and over? So it's important that we're talking about action here, right? So these are nonverbal cues. It's just watching their behavior that is consistent and also possibly, well, largely unconscious to them. So as mentioned previously on these episodes, I come from a family that has greatly struggled with addiction. And one of those was, you know, addiction, again, as a child, I didn't know that was the language for it, right? I didn't necessarily, I knew something was maybe off or struggling. I didn't know that there was necessarily an addiction or a problem because it's all I knew. It's the actions that I was seeing consistently and behavior that I was seeing from the adults around me that they were just unconsciously going through and going about their day. So this addiction also then became my norm. So reflecting back on it now as an adult with a different lens, I'm able to be a witness to seeing how how people coped. And like you're sharing with your father, my dad was definitely and is still very charming, Mr. Mr. Charming, like a ray of sunshine, literally. And in the home, behind closed doors, you know, given everyone's own trauma and struggle, there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of yelling. There was a lot of abuse. And in those moments or in that rage that was never shown on the outside, what was shown on the outside was, you know, picture perfect family. I call us the Kodak family. There's a number of years. If you flip through our photo albums, it looks so picturesque. We have our garden, we have flowers. My mom was a florist. It looks really beautiful. And you'd never really know what was behind closed doors, right? Which I think a lot of us can relate to. We all, it's very natural to go, well, for some of us, for myself at least, to go throw on a smiling face or a happy face and to really put on a facade that everything's good when inside there's actually turmoil. While a lot of our environment you know, occurs inside the home in childhood, it's also the environment outside of the home that helps shape so many of our beliefs. So now moving out from our caregivers, and of course this includes our family and our siblings and anyone in the homes upon which we're born and we're living, um, again, hearing their beliefs, watching the way that they are operating in the world, this is all impacting us and what we eventually come to believe about ourselves, others, our relationships, the world. Also those now outer environments. So. The messaging, again, direct and indirect, that we might receive around our skills or our personality traits. Oftentimes, this is then connected to what we'll do for work. How many of us have heard, right, if we've excelled in math or science, that we might as well be a doctor? Or maybe if we cared for our siblings in the home, we might have heard messaging what a good parent will be someday. Our educational system sends a lot of these messages. We come here in the West from a one-size-fits-all educational system, and we begin to, again, internalize beliefs about ourselves and our abilities to achieve based on how we're measuring up. Of course, the problem here is that if we're not fitting into that one-size-fits-all model, so many of the beliefs that we're internalizing around our abilities are probably not going to be very positive ones. 
a lot of messaging, those of us who came from religious-based backgrounds, a lot of it is colored by our religion or our culture. Again, things that are directly being communicated, usually around morality or this idea of right and wrong. Again, we're hearing that in our environments. Those of us that have gone to religious-based schools or you know have religion in our communities are probably hearing that from all of the community members around us. And then of course, there's peer pressure, right? When we get to a certain age, our peers are incredibly important to us. And so what they're doing, how they're dressing, what they think or don't think really does become impactful for us and our creation of our, our own beliefs. So now we wanna go out, we wanna expand out from our family environment and begin to consider what are the other circles of impact? What are the other things that we heard or saw or maybe even felt pressure to conform to that impacted what we now believe to be true? Again, about ourselves, our relationships and our world. So the final place um, in talking about core beliefs. So we have core beliefs, of course, that come from our parent figures and our immediate family environments. And then we began to explore how, you know, different circles of influence, our communities, our school, our peers begin to have on us. The major, major impact for our beliefs are our actual experiences, regardless if they happen in the home or outside of the home. And a big reason for this is because of this complete state of dependency that we're in as children. We quite literally need others to survive, to make sure that our needs are met, namely our physical ones at first, we need to be in relationship. We need someone helping us. Childhood is extremely overwhelming for that reason, because we're dependent, because the unknown is terrifying, and because we can't actually make sure that our needs are getting met. And from that state of dependency, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of stress. And if you don't, like I know I didn't have, and like many of us don't have, if you don't have that secure attachment figure, that person, that parent figure who has you know, a calm nervous system to help you regulate, you're left feeling even more overwhelmed. And how this played out in my life is having a mother who herself was in fight or flight, she was quite literally putting out the next fire that had erupted. And in that state of dysregulation, I didn't have that calm, balanced nervous system. So before I know it, both my mom and myself were in a complete state of overwhelm. So our childhood experiences impact us because we need others. So therefore we're impacted by how balanced and how regulated that other is. And so many of us don't have that secure point of attachment, don't have the person that can take us from stress back down into calm. Because many of us have caregivers that are just as stressed and just as overwhelmed as we are as children. As Nicole mentioned, most adults can't regulate their emotions. Now, how do we know that? Well, most of us here listening or watching are adults who are learning now how to regulate our emotions. That's quite literally why we're here teaching and doing this podcast. So, and why Nicole wrote the book is to give you tools to apply to your life to learn how to do this. So you're not wrong for not knowing how. It's also a little bit of compassion to have for our parent figures and those that were around us growing up that, you know, they maybe didn't have how to do the work. We know that they didn't have this book. We They may not have had as much access or tools to resources. So it's okay that they didn't. We know that we're all here on a journey learning how to regulate. Our main objective as a child is to receive love. And why is that? Because if we receive love as a child, we can be sure that we can continue to be safe, fed, and generally cared for. 
So in a very real way, our physical needs of childhood depend on our relationships or how others are showing up in service of helping us meet our needs. And when our physical needs aren't consistently met because of a developmental stage that our brain is in in childhood, we assume responsibility for that need going unmet. Now, I'm going to repeat this again. In childhood, all of our brains are in a developmental stage that we call egocentricism, which really means that we don't understand a separation between who I am and who someone else is. We can't understand that other people have different thoughts, have different beliefs, have different motives, might be affected by factors outside of even our awareness. All we can see is us. So in the very real way that I know a lot of us have heard of this word egocentricism, and it's often used, I believe, a little bit misappropriately. The concept here, though, is the same. Focus on us. And again, in childhood, all we can do is understand the world through that filter, through it being a function of us. And this plays a really important role because when, again, our needs are not met in childhood, we do by default because that's the only thing that we can developmentally do, we assume responsibility. We assume it's because we're bad or we're not worthy of having that need met. And then again, that level of understanding for many of us forms the basis of a belief that we then carry with us into the world, even into adulthood. So an example of what that might look like, um, you could apply this to your own childhood. I'll take mine and a mom who comes home from work late. She's working a couple jobs to help feed the kids and just keep everything in order, right? So she's coming home late. She's exhausted. She is now unable to engage. She's had a full day. It's now eight, nine at night. She's got three hungry mouths to feed still when it's already past bedtime. So she's coming home already depleted and exhausted. My experience of her then is she's distant. She's unable to spend time with me. So the child's self-worth is then impacted by that. As a child in an egocentric state of development, you can't understand that mom's having a difficult day because she hasn't slept, because she's struggling with her own stressors or her job at work, because in my case, she's struggling with a nasty custody battle. So we can't understand that she's having a difficult day because she hasn't slept or is struggling to feed her children, is stressed about her custody battle. We instead believe that we've caused her distance or her lack of engagement. So when I see her come home and I see her not come to me, I'm not getting attention, she's distant, she doesn't want to engage because she's depleted. Her resources are already gone, right? I, as a child, internalize that and I, I make it personal. I believe that I've caused that. I don't have a perspective outside of hers. I don't have a way to view that as my own yet, right? I'm, I'm viewing life through her. I'm dependent on her as my caregiver. So as a child in this stage of egocentrism, as little Jenna with a mom coming home at the end of the day who's completely depleted, doesn't want to talk to me, can't engage with me, I think that that's a reflection of me. We as children think that that reflection is of who we are ourselves. So the kicker here is that most adults are also still in this stage. So what does that look like? What do I mean? It basically means that it manifests as taking everything personally. So as a child, I'm now developing this core belief that it's my fault. It's about me because as a child, everything revolves around me, right? So no matter what happens in my experience externally, it's a direct result of something I've done. To be clear, when we're talking about that, we're talking about 
different needs. We're talking about our emotional needs. We're talking about our spiritual needs. None of those needs can be met until our basic, our physical needs can be. So those of us that had parents that were locked in survival mode, that were living in a dysregulated nervous system, to hold space for a child so that a child can be seen, can be heard, can have space to express itself is virtually impossible. Reading now right from the book, page 116, Few people, let alone stressed parents, have the tools to meet all of these needs all of the time. Even the most fully realized families have limitations. When children's emotional needs are not adequately or consistently met, they often develop a subconscious core belief that they are not worthy of having these needs met. When they are emotionally denied, they overcompensate exaggerating some parts of themselves and denying others based on what they perceive to be validated or considered worthy by their parent figures. So Jenna shared her experiences, mine very similarly, right? A mother, a family locked in survival mode, always looking for the next fire, always having to put that next fire out. I share a, a very pivotal moment in my book um, where what my mom, very anxious over my father and his late return from work, was unable to see the effect that her anxiety was having on me. I share a story where my mom gazing out the window wasn't even aware that I was equally as nervous. I was equally sensing that something was wrong or off. She actually couldn't see me. Um, another example of this looks like, right, when a child comes home and might be having a feeling that makes the parent uncomfortable. Again, like Jenna verbalized earlier, even in adult bodies, so many of us are uncomfortable with our own feelings. So to avoid the discomfort, the parent often very unconsciously denies the child of that same feeling, tells them it's not a big deal, not to worry about it. Oh, just go outside and play. And again, in the moment that could seem very cold, the parent doesn't care to hear what is troubling their child. And again, in that moment, it's not a conscious action at all. In the moment, the parent actually usually can't care. They themselves are locked in a survival mode. What's important and why we talk about concepts like egocentricism, like overwhelm in childhood, we have to remind ourselves that many of us, most of us, are adults now, looking back, right, in a different developmental stage, having the maturity, having been in relationships, knowing how stressful and tiring work is. We have all of these new awarenesses now as adults, right? So when we do these explorations, when we try to understand the beliefs that were formed in childhood that continue to impact us, we have to compassionately remind ourselves that we were children at that time with different developmental capabilities. We actually couldn't do certain things. And in a lot of the cases, neither could our caregivers, neither could our parents. Right. Now we're going to dive into something that I think is really cool called the reticular activating system. The reticular activating system is actually part of our brain. Um, you can think about it as our mind's filter. And it's actually the, the main mechanism or the main way that our beliefs are maintained. So what do I mean when I say this? We are bombarded by stimulation as humans. We quite literally cannot take in everything that's happening in any given moment. So what our brain does, it actually deletes parts of our experience. And it deletes parts of our experience that it deems not relevant to us and our current moment. Our beliefs become the main filter for that deletion. 
all of us humans have operate under something called a confirmation of bias. We love to be right. So whatever belief has been formed in my subconscious, now think of it as a lens. It becomes the lens that I'm just viewing my current moment through. And what my reticular activating system is doing, all outside of my awareness, it's actually deleting the things that don't map on to that particular belief or that might even offer evidence to the contrary of that belief. It deletes it from my experience. So what do I do? I only see evidence that confirms what I believe to be true. I become a self-confirming machine. So the things that happen in childhood actually become the lens that I continue to travel through the world with. Deleting any evidence to the contrary, only becoming more sure, more certain of those beliefs. We all have this part of our brain and we're all doing this day in and day out. So the large majority of the time, there is actually evidence to the contrary. There are actually new experiences that so many of us are living that our reticular activating system is deleting. It's saying it's not relevant and not necessary for who I am. So a really common example, um, some of you might have even have experienced this or heard of this example is you're looking to buy a car. Um, you, you want a Kia Soul, for instance. You go, you have this car in mind, and before you know it, you're driving around and all you see is every other human in your neighborhood with that same car. So that is an example of the reticular activating system. You primed right your system by saying, I want this car. I'm sure you've thought about it. You've probably gone to dealerships. Maybe you even looked at you know pricing of these cars. The more you think about this car, the more that car then becomes the filter. Now, it's not that there's more Kia Souls on the road, it's that you're seeing them. You've actually now expanded this filter. You've told your mind that this car is now relevant for who you are in this moment, so you're seeing more of it. It's not that there's more cars there, it's just your filter has expanded. So essentially, it is our beliefs that are creating our entire life experience. So we're seeing our life through the lens of the past, of what we already know. That belief, that lens is actually creating the experience around us. Now, the amazing thing about this is that we have the ability to change that quite literally in an instant. So changing your beliefs will actually change your life. The things that you look at change when you change the way that you look at things. I think that was a quote from Wayne Dyer that I absolutely love, and it really is that simple in a moment. The moment you choose to change your thought, you begin to choose and change your perspective, your then whole experience wrapped around that begins to change. And again, this it takes practice to do that continuously, but it really does begin with that one thought that then creates that long-term belief. So our thoughts are powerful, our beliefs are more powerful. We essentially set ourselves up from our past experiences to continue to confirm those same experiences until, of course, we become conscious and we become aware of the impact that our past continues to have in our present moment and we begin to create change. So speaking of reconditioning our subconscious, practicing new beliefs, we have two questions coming in from the community. First one is from Kerry. Hi, my name is Carrie. Um, I'm from Texas, and I'm just wondering about the belief of how you process things and understand things into your reality. Like how, if you can, if you're over aware, I guess, and you can understand everything from the highest view and the worst view, 
And then how do you pick and which one do you actually believe if you can see the worst case scenario understanding or the best case scenario understanding? And if it's hope or relief or, um, you know, if you need to accept the situation and move forward or keep working at it, how do you determine between those two? Um, I hope you're back. Thank you. So thank you, Carrie. Um, Carrie's question is really about being an overthinker and being able to essentially see all sides of a situation. So very similar to Carrie, uh, many of us can you know, pull back and understand many sides of a different situation, many different perspectives. I see this in myself. Um, I see a general, almost unconscious tendency to be able to understand someone else, what their wants, what their needs are, almost to the extent that I override my own, um, to the point that there was even a time in my life where, if I was honest, I didn't even know what, how I perceived or how I felt about a particular situation. So the simple answer is this is one of those moments, right, where we want to drop out of our thinking mind and into our bodies, begin to ask ourselves, how do I feel about this situation? How does my body responding? Whenever I hear language around worst case, possible, do I reframe it? All I'm hearing is thoughts, thinking mind, right? I'm trying to solve a problem from up here, I'm pointing to my head for those of you just listening, instead of dropping into my body and asking myself, how does my body feel about this? How, how do I feel about what's happening? What do I need to happen next? So again, the work here is practicing consistently how to shift out, how to not maybe try to cognitively or think our way through a situation by assessing the best or the worst outcome and instead dropping into our bodies and determining how we feel about it. So an example that a more recent one, um, ever since I reconnected with my family, um, I made a decision to fall out of contact with my family based on the need for me to carve out space to determine how I think, how I feel, what I need. When I got, of course, to a stable place and I determined that I did want to, to try to reconnect, I saw similar patterning in my family, particularly around stress, where historically when there was a stressful event, the whole family called and we all were kind of in the loop of what was happening. For me, I understood by that point what that provided my family. For a very long time, that provided us all a sense of closeness, a sense of being you know, together, unified in whatever the stress was happening. So flash forward in time, now I can, I, I've seen many moments where stressful events occur in my family. I can see their perspective. I can see how for me, giving them a phone call would serve that perspective. Here we can become bonded, right, in this stressful event. I, however, created a space to decide if I wanted to be bonded, if I felt the need for closeness with my family, giving myself the opportunity to participate in that version of closeness, seeing from their perspective what it was and understanding that, it also gave me the opportunity to not, to decide that I could see closeness or support a different way. So this is one of those moments where in that space, instead of understanding why my parents needed me to call or how I could serve them, I created space to drop into my body and to determine on each shifting situation, can I now? Does this something I want now? Does that phone call, will that phone call make me feel supported, loved, connected now? Sometimes the answer was yes. And I gave that phone call. Even though it was in the context of stress, I was able to identify 
a me reason, a need that I could have met. I was able to put myself into the equation. And then other times I gave myself the gift and the opportunity to, while I understood what they needed, I was able to drop in and determine what I needed in that moment. And to really, Carrie, thank you for your question and thank you, Nicole. To really boil it down, um, simply you get to choose. You reference being able to see, you know, from the highest vantage point and from the lowest vantage point, you're able to see the perspectives. I know sometimes it can almost feel infuriating when you're in conversation or maybe even in conflict with someone and you can see the other side of the coin. You can mm -hmm. see entirely from their perspective. So then you're kind of left with, well, what do I do now? Well, that's the most powerful place to be because what do you do now actually means that all of the power is in your hands to then choose. So I say it really boils down so simply because you have the power of choice. When Carrie, you're already asking, you know, well, which one do I choose? This is where the power is in your hands. You're your own best healer, right? It's not Nicole. It's not me. It's not anyone else. It's for you to choose. So you get to choose which vantage point you want to choose it from. The highest one, the lowest front the worst case scenario, the best case scenario, whichever it is, how you move forward. Again, this goes back to what we were just talking about with that reticular activating system. Your beliefs shape your experience, right? Well, your beliefs, as we get older and we become conscious to that, we become aware, it is choice. That consciousness leads to choice where we then get to choose, do I want to believe this? I see that choice or my beliefs are what created my experience, right? And that's through the lens of my past. So as you just learned about the reticular activating system, I've been abandoned in my past, right? So then what does that mean? What is that activating system doing? It's setting out in my life to filter and expect and find situations to prove itself right. I've been abandoned, so what am I searching for? I'm searching for areas and places to be abandoned. When I become conscious, when I now realize I have the power of choice, I can see that that's happening. Like Carrie here, you've mentioned in your question, you can see all sides of all of it. So now you're at the point of healing where you have that conscious witness. You're able to step outside and reflect and view. Now you're able to move forward in choice. So it's how you, it's how Carrie wants to move forward. And that's a responsibility in itself to really swallow. It's, we don't, we kind of always want to, at least me, I always want to search for answers, right? I always want to keep going. There's something else out there that I must not know. I can't ever get to the finish line, right? There's got to be something else. So it is a little confronting to hear then, well, it's up to you. You're actually at a place now where you can go left or you can go right. And it really is a responsibility and an ownership to one, acknowledge and honor yourself for getting to that place and now realizing that the ball's in your court now. You really get to choose which direction and which viewpoint you want to take, which belief you want to choose. Speaking about choice, we have another question about changing your beliefs coming in from Jennifer. Good morning. This is Jennifer from Sacramento, California. I had a question um, regarding chapter six, the power of belief. As I'm revisiting this section and kind of re-understanding how these core beliefs and the RAS, I think is what it was called, if that kind of shapes our daily experience and we're seeing the world through that lens, how exactly does one then practice that new thought, right? Because are, is the goal then to have the awareness during your day to catch yourself seeing that experience through your core belief, like validating that, and then just practicing your new thought 
because when I was doing the SSJ, um, that's kind of what I struggle with. It's like, is this new belief believable, which I know the book kind of references just keep practicing and you will get there. So I'm, I'm still doing that. Um, but I just want to understand like practical application throughout the day. Is it about just catching yourself in that moment? And then that's when you jump in and do your new mantras and your new affirmations and your reframed beliefs. Or is it just about kind of journaling and practicing throughout your day in general? Hope that makes sense. And thank you, you guys, for everything that you do. I love the book and love the team. Thanks. Thank you, Jennifer. So Jennifer's question is how to change your beliefs and begin to recondition your subconscious. So I'm going to break this down into two simple steps. Um, the first step, Jennifer, as Jennifer very beautifully put it, it's to, as always, to witness, right? To witness the different thoughts that are always present throughout your day and to notice when those old thoughts come. Not to feel shameful here, beliefs will come up. Thoughts will happen all day long and they tend to be around the same beliefs that we have repeated time and time again. So here's my warning. Don't expect, now that we know how powerful beliefs are, don't expect your beliefs and your related thoughts to go away. Anticipate that they're there. So the first step is being that conscious witness, noticing, right, when your mind, your subconscious mind offers the first, right, thought connected to those beliefs. And then to refocus your attention. The most powerful choice you can make is how much time now you're spending. Are you going to spiral down that thought, one thought leading to the next thought, and before you know it, you're reciting that age-old belief, perhaps around unworthiness, or can you learn how to control where your attention goes? And when you see that first offering of that first one, unworthiness-based thought, removing your attention, putting it on your breath, putting it on something you're doing in the present moment, remove it from that old thought. You can't stop it, but here's where we can spend less time repeating it. So the first step is twofold. Practice that conscious witnessing so that then you can remove your attention. Don't expect the thought to go away. Just consistently practice spending less and less time in that thought. Step two, just like Jennifer beautifully put it, is to practice a new thought. Write a new affirmation. Say it as many times as you can. Practice a new thought consistently. Don't expect to believe it. Now remember, like Jen and I have been offering, many of us have been practicing and confirming these thoughts, these old beliefs, for a lifetime. Now, Jennifer asked, when do I practice this thought? Do I do it in, in the morning? Do I do it in that moment? Anytime you can. Now, for some, some of us, especially when it's our deepest rooted core belief, right, it's going to be hard to offer yourself a new thought. For some of us, that first step is going to be the most important. Just get out of that old thought. Just throw your attention into somewhere, anywhere else. Other times, we can offer the new thought right in that moment. Though, again, don't expect to believe it. There's going to be a deep part of you, as I often joke, that's rolling its eyes. It's saying, yeah, okay. So the example I use, right, if there's a deep-rooted feeling of unworthiness, say the belief is I'm unworthy, write down how worthy you are and begin to practice it. And don't get discouraged when you don't believe that you're worthy the first 1,200 times even. 
practice all of the time because unbeknownst to you, we've all been practicing those old beliefs outside of our awareness very consistently and again, confirming it in our environment. So beliefs can change and they start with that practice. We want to minimize time spent in the old by paying attention to when those thoughts come and removing our focus, removing our attention, and then practice new beliefs, use mantras, use affirmations, set alarms on your phone and begin to practice a new thought. You may be hearing a theme as you do in all of our teachings really, and definitely all throughout the book, which is repetition and consistency. And we're talking about changing new beliefs, right? Well, where did those beliefs come from in childhood? They came from a whole childhood that then instilled this whole belief, right? So that was days and days and days and years and years and years that then instilled that belief. So like Nicole's saying, you know, you might not believe you're worthy. It might be confronting or feel weird to sort of convince yourself of this far-fetched thing that you've spent a lifetime not believing, right? That's why it's repetition. And I hear a lot, uh, Jennifer, in your question, there's almost like a searching. We hear this a lot from people around this work. You know, am I doing it right? How do I do it? Do I keep going? Do I just keep repeating? Like, you know, it's getting kind of boring. Well, yeah. And, you know, your whole childhood, those 10, 15 years that really created the conditioning and the patterns and the beliefs that you have now, look at all the repetition that went into that, right? It was your whole you know, zero through teenage years. So now as an adult tackling something, you know, weeks in, you've done it over and over. Great. Why isn't it changing? You've got to keep going. And while you've got to keep going, I know that sounds like, oh, geez, you're really making us do the work. Well, we are. If you want healing and you want transformation, then you do actually have to do the work. And Jennifer, I really want to acknowledge you and everyone that always calls in, all of our Self Healer Circle members too, I constantly am reminding and really want to be in a state of celebration and acknowledgement for even the space that you're in, Jennifer, to, to ask that question or to throughout your day, you're noticing these things, you're noticing where the old beliefs come in and you're even wondering, oh, well, what do I do there? Do I say a mantra? The fact that you're at a place now to even have that ping also shows just how far you are on your journey. And for each person who is wondering, you know, am I doing this right? Am I feature self journaling right? Am I, am I doing the healing? Am I applying this in a practical way that makes sense? There isn't a right or wrong way to do it. The key is just to actually do it and to celebrate yourself along the way. Wherever you are right now, Jennifer, you in particular in this question, you're at a perfect place on your journey. You're doing it exactly how you're supposed to be doing it. Now, how do I know that without even knowing you? How does Nicole know that? We know that simply because it's happening. We know that you're in the perfect place because you're already there. You're simply in that place right now. So that in itself tells us you're not meant to be in any other place really. And Again, this brings us back to the power of choice, right? Which can be a little confronting. You're literally one thought away from a new belief, from a new way of being, from creating a new life experience. And that newness is born in the constant repetition. So when you notice that that old belief come up and you think, oh, I've got to go make a mantra. Well, yeah, you could choose to or you could not. That's that pivotal moment. You have a moment of choice now. Do I want to now that I have the awareness, that was the first step, and that's huge. So now I have the awareness. I see that that belief's even coming up. Well, where do I want to go? 
Do I want to continue to strengthen the past and just fuel and feed that old belief? Or do I want to make a conscious choice to do something maybe new and uncomfortable, to tell myself I'm worthy, to tell myself I'm safe, to tell myself I'm lovable, a little bit outside of my comfort zone, knowing that that consistent repetition is going to then grow and instill and really create a new belief that you've consciously chosen that is actually a belief that's aligned with the whole perfect human that you are versus the belief that you know kind of was instilled on you based on what was happening around you in childhood so really it again comes down to it is your choice and again you'll hear repetitive from me again with the repetition and i know to any circle members listening you hear this all the time it's through consistency and through acknowledging and celebrating those little moments of consciousness along the way because that celebration in itself is actually creating a neural pathway it's actually creating a very deep belief of celebration of self-trust even absolutely it is from that foundation of consciousness i think we even said that the the first episode here that choice becomes possible. And the more we create that space and the more we look within to find the choices, to determine how we feel, what we need, the more we're able to create choices that are more in alignment with that whole self, like Jenna put it. We all have a very powerful subconscious that likes, aims, seeks, feels it needs for survival reasons to keep us in that familiar. We're all carrying the lens of our belief that we're often, again, formed in childhood with us into our adulthood, keeping us even more stuck in those habits and patterns that are usually serving none of us into adulthood. We all carry a deep part of our subconscious called our inner child. Next episode, we're going to explore more of what we mean when we say inner child and again, how our past continues to affect our present moments, even as adults. For those of you who are reading along or have read the book, if you have questions on next week, it is chapter seven. So chapter seven, meet your inner child please call our voicemail and leave us your name, location, leave us your questions around inner child, around the inner child chapter. Um, we'll be answering them next week. The number is 213-375-8385. It is also on your screen below. Thank you for tuning in with us today as we discussed the power of belief. We look forward to diving into meeting your inner child with you next week. Shh. <laughs>